John Ziegler here. Excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly, and my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to imbuecbd.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at imbuecbd.com. That's imbuecbd.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 82 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program, at least usually, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately, no one else is willing, to able to, or willing and able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at individual1pod. That's individual, the number one pod. I want to begin episode number 82 with a bit of an apology. Because of a uh, series of perfect storm circumstances, this is our first episode in a while. And, of course, the timing could not have been worse. This is a podcast that was created almost a year ago, largely based upon the anticipation that Donald Trump would eventually be impeached, thus the name of the podcast, Individual One, something we've referred to many times in the past. And now here we finally have Donald Trump's impeachment trial beginning, and partially because of a plan uh, to take one weekend off, and then mostly because of some catastrophic technical problems at our other studio, we've not been able to produce a podcast during the beginning or previewing the impeachment trial. But, you know, we are here now. You cannot be serious! I know. It's been a very, very frustrating situation. We're better than that! I'm not so sure about that. It's just flat out ridiculous. Yeah, the whole thing has been very, very frustrating. But now it's all been corrected, and we're glad to be back with you. And we are now in the middle of this impeachment trial, an impeachment trial that is really being dictated by one person. And that one person is Senator Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky. For those of you who don't recall, I have referenced in the past that I have a a bit of a history with Mitch McConnell. Uh, He and I knew each other a little bit when I was a talk show host in Louisville, Kentucky. 
At first, uh, Mitch McConnell tried to woo me. Then he screwed me. Uh, not uh, literally, but uh, figuratively, we attended a uh, University of Louisville football game together. Uh, I got to know him a, a bit more than most people because of the fact that he tried to woo me and then screw me. And while I do not like him at a, as a person at all, I mean, he is a, a really horrible person. Correct. Uh, he is very smart, and he's a very good chess player. He is not a guy I would want to play chess with. Uh, he understands politics as well as anybody. He understands the, the nature of the Senate better than anybody, and he is very good at positioning uh, his self-interest and the self-interest of his caucus in a way that is best for him and the best for the Republican Party to maintain control. Not necessarily what's best for the country. That's no longer really a, a consideration in any of this. Correct. Un unfortunately, but Mitch McConnell is a very formidable guy when it comes to determining, okay, what is in the best political interest of me and my caucus, the Republicans in the Senate, and I guess indirectly in this case, the president of the United States, because they are tied at the hip. There's no question about that. And Mitch McConnell is the person who has essentially set the rules for this impeachment trial. He has done so in a very shady and typical Mitch McConnell way. He has claimed that he is doing so with the precedent of the Bill Clinton impeachment trial. Except there's a couple of major problems with that. The first is that he has not actually adopted all of the rules of the Bill Clinton precedent back in 1999. It should be important to point out that Mitch McConnell voted to convict Bill Clinton as a member of the Senate back in 1999. And he's clearly not going to convict Donald Trump of far worse offenses where the evidence is at least as overwhelming as it was against Bill Clinton, if not more so. But there are several key differences between the rules that have been adopted for this impeachment trial and those that occurred back in 1999. But it's even worse than the fact that he's essentially lying about these being the Clinton rules. There are incredibly important differences in how we got to an impeachment trial. As much as I had disdain for Bill Clinton and believed that he should have been removed from office, and I'm about one of 35, 40 people that both believe that Bill Clinton, that believe both that Bill Clinton should have been removed from office and believe that Donald Trump should be removed from office. So there's about 40 of us in this country that have been consistent on, on the issue of impeachment and, and whether or not a president should be removed from office. Uh, as much disdain as I have for Bill Clinton, at the very least, Bill Clinton cooperated fully with that impeachment inquiry. Correct. There was no obstruction of the inquiry itself. Now, there was obstruction when it came to the charges against Bill Clinton, but nobody was prevented from testifying. Uh, uh, there, was, there was no overt cover-up like there has been in this particular case. And so, the, and since, especially since one of the charges against Donald Trump is obstruction of Congress, we're talking about apples and oranges here with regard to the context of how we got here. Because a large part of the reason why the rules were adopted as they did were adopted back in 1999 is one, there was no major obstruction of the process. And two, and this is really important, the Republicans, including Mitch McConnell back in 1999, wanted that trial over with quickly. Correct. They did not want to get to the bottom line or the truth of that particular situation because it was not politically advantageous for them. 
So you had Republicans who were in charge who were setting up rules to help facilitate an acquittal as quickly as possible, even though almost all of them voted to convict. They knew they weren't going to get 67 votes, and so they just wanted this thing over with. And that was a sham trial, too. Only three witnesses uh, via deposition. They weren't even, in my opinion, the best witnesses, but it was a show trial. It wasn't real, and that was created by Republicans because they didn't want this thing to go on for a long time. They didn't want to get to the real issues involved because they knew it was a losing fight. So McConnell, and this is crafty McConnell, McConnell has said, well, let's go to the Bill Clinton precedent as if, because most people don't remember 1999, and you know this is beyond most people's memory and expertise, they think, oh, well, that makes sense. That seems fair. That was a, the, the trial of a Democrat. So clearly, if the rules for a trial against a Democrat were, were the same as adopted for Donald Trump, that would be fair. But no, these situations are actually in some ways more similar than they might appear, but also significantly different. So that's the first fallacy of Mitch McConnell's setup of the rules here. Uh, There's also several things that Mitch McConnell has said in trying to justify uh, his defense of Donald Trump and these sham trial rules that are just absurd. Uh, My favorite, or least favorite, is that uh, Mitch McConnell in his opening statement said that this is all an attempt to, quote, undo a Democratic election. It's just flat out ridiculous. Uh, It's absurd. It's completely and totally absurd. And you know who you you should ask about how absurd that is? Mike Pence. Correct. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence has has to feel like uh, the, 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 the guy who is the least liked person on the planet. By the way, today uh, he was snubbed by Prince Charles in a in a greeting line in a pretty hilarious video that's going viral on, on Twitter. But that's the way Mike Pence is feeling about everybody, because Republicans, if they like Mike Pence at all, should be like, oh, OK, yeah, uh, Donald Trump uh, committed impeachable offenses. Let's get rid of him. Let's put Mike Pence in there, because that's all that would happen. Impeachment does not undo an election. Correct. If it did, Hillary Clinton would be the next president of the United States, not Mike Pence. If Donald Trump were to be removed, nothing changes. The Republican Party controls the White House. And guess what? Mike Pence would get to choose whoever his vice president would then be. Correct. The only thing that would happen is we would get rid of this cancer that is President Trump. Correct. Well, that's not going to happen because everybody knows, one, that Trump owns a huge portion of the Republican Party through his cult. I love the poorly educated. And that he can turn that cult against the Republican Party. And if the Republican Party were to lose even 20, 25, 30 percent of its base because Trump, via his Twitter feed and his access to the media, Uh, was turning them against uh, Republican candidates, Republicans would get destroyed in November. So that's why the Republicans have no choice but to stand by Donald Trump. But it is not a factual statement. It's not even close that somehow impeachment is undoing a Democratic election. And so Mitch McConnell has made a calculation 
And I think it is probably the right calculation, but it's a little bit of a risky one. Now, I'm talking purely politically, not from the standpoint of what is right and wrong or what's best for the country. Again, unfortunately, those factors don't matter anymore. But he has to make a calculation with regard to how this trial goes down as to which is the worst scenario for me and keeping uh, my Senate majority and maybe keeping uh, Donald Trump in office. Is it to just totally stonewall, get this process over with, not have witnesses, not allow new documents, and just deal with whatever blowback there might be from people who realize that this is a sham trial? Or do I let there be a semi-real trial, because I'm forced to, because people like Mitt Romney or, or Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, people like that, who seemingly have at least half a conscience and are, are in situations where they are politically required to, to be at least somewhat open-minded, do I allow there to be witnesses in a semi-real trial and allow even more damaging information to come out about Donald Trump? So which is it? That's the calculation that Mitch McConnell was trying to make. And right now he's clearly in the boat of, you know what, I will take whatever price I have to pay when it comes to not having a real trial. And this is probably the correct bet on his part, uh, even though there's some evidence that it might not be. The, re the reason why it might be the right bet is, let's face it, it's January. People don't vote until November. And that's a very long time, especially in this day and age. This is probably going to be ancient history in most people's minds. Are people really going to dictate their vote by whether or not the Senate allowed witnesses and documents in a trial that was already a foregone conclusion that no one ever believed uh, was going to lead to the conviction and the removal of President Trump? I, I am very skeptical of that. Now, the polling data is overwhelming. Some 65, 70 percent of the American people want there to be witnesses, want there to be somewhat of a real trial. Interestingly, my wife, who I've referred to several times in this podcast before as my one-person focus group, she is somebody who is somewhat fond of Donald Trump, but I'm, I'm convinced she expresses her fondness for Trump mostly just to screw with my head. But that's another story for another day. But she, she doesn't hate Trump. I, I've referred to her as a level one Trump cult member. And even she proactively uh, mentioned to me that she was offended by the fact that there's no witnesses at this trial and that that screamed guilt and that she seemed pretty, you know, sincere about that. Now, if she's feeling that way, I got to believe some other people are feeling that way. And again, the polling data indicates that's the case. I do think, though, on the other side of this equation, that that polling data is a bit deceiving. And here's why it's a bit deceiving. Number one, within that 65, 70% number, you have a significant number. I don't know what it is. It's impossible to know for sure. But you have a significant number of Trump fans, cult members, who are so rabid that they actually want to see witnesses because they want to see the Bidens forced to testify. Correct. And so that's inflating the number of people saying, they want to see witnesses. Again, I don't know what percentage it is. It's significant. I communicated 
uh, about this topic with my good friend, Congressman John Yarmouth, Democrat, uh, chairman of the House uh, Budget Committee today. And, and he reminded me, yeah, that's true. But there are a lot of independents who also want witnesses. And that is accurate. But then I go back to the other issue. How much do they really care about this? Is this just a preference or is this an issue over which they will actually change their vote or vote against Republicans and they will remember this now, uh, you know, eight, nine months from now? I, I, I am skeptical of that. So I actually think that McConnell is probably making the right choice from the standpoint of politics. Now, one of the other things I mentioned to Congressman Yarmouth, and he tended to agree with me on this, but this is a point that's not being made enough. The Democratic House impeachment managers are in a bit of a catch-22 when it comes to putting on their case. In fact, it's probably not more than a bit of a, a catch-22. And here's what I mean by that. Now, they're trying to put on as strong a case as they can to try to convince those semi-reasonable Republican senators that there should be witnesses and more documents. And so they believe, and it's understandable, this is the, the natural inclination, they believe that the best way to do that is to show how strong the evidence is against Trump and to make the best case they can. Except, I believe strongly that the impact of that will be the exact opposite of what they are intending. And here's why it's the exact opposite of what they are intending. Put yourself in the mindset of a malleable Republican senator. If you're trying to determine whether or not to allow witnesses, the first thing you're going to consider, or one of the first things you're going to consider is, okay, if these witnesses come forward, how damaging are they going to be to Trump and the Republican Party? Like, for instance, a John Bolton. If you think that, you know what, this case isn't as strong as Democrats are pretending it is, and maybe Bolton will be ambiguous, and maybe it won't be all that damaging, you're actually more likely to vote in favor of witnesses, right? Well, if the converse happens, and you're convinced that, holy crap, this was an obvious and overt scandal and the evidence is overwhelming and these witnesses are going to come in and they're going to confirm all this and maybe even provide even more evidence than we already have. You're going to go, hmm, maybe this isn't such a great idea. And that gets to the second part of this problem. Those very same people, they're looking for a way to vote not guilty. They are desperate for a way to, if they can, in an ideal world, if they can somehow allow their conscience, whatever guilt they may still have lingering from the era when you know Republicans still had a soul before Donald Trump, there are a few senators who still have a memory of that soul. And so they are looking for a reason to acquit, to vote not guilty, to not vote to convict and remove Trump. Well, if you provide witnesses like a John Bolton and they are compelling, you've just made that more difficult. You've made it more difficult for them to get to the conclusion that they already want to get to. So the great irony of what we've seen so far in this impeachment trial is Democrats are actually 
doing their cause a disservice, not on purpose, by putting on a very strong and compelling case. If the case against Trump sucked, I actually think there would be Republican senators who would be far more willing to go, yeah, let's have a real trial. Correct. Because they wouldn't be afraid of it. They don't, wouldn't think it would be damaging to Trump and the party in an election year. And it wouldn't make it more difficult for them to get to where they want to go, which is a not guilty verdict. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting Mitt Romney in this category. By the way, I wrote a column, which was an open letter to Mitt Romney on the eve of the trial, essentially begging him to vote to convict Donald Trump for historical purposes. It's a really important issue, which I'm sure I'll talk about in, in greater depth in future episodes of the podcast. But I urge you to go to our Twitter feed and find out or just Google it. But it's easy to find at our Twitter feed, individual, the number one pod. And Romney is really the leader of this group because Romney's the one that can provide cover for anybody else who might be willing to go in that direction. I've said many times previewing this months and months ago, where we were headed with all this, this is where we miss John McCain. Because John McCain would be providing all sorts of cover for people who were willing and able to do the right thing, but now he's dead, and Lindsey Graham, his former friend, has completely lost his soul and gone to the dark side. Correct. So Mitt Romney is somebody that I'm not confident in, but at least there's a shot uh, with him. And my guess is that he's probably worried about calling for witnesses now because it will be a crap show. Now, let me just say, because I'm a lifelong Republican and I'm a, an even longer lifelong cynic, Democrats might actually be playing this game pretty well, too, because even though they desperately say they want witnesses, there's at least a part of them that doesn't want witnesses. Not because they don't believe in their case, but because the card they would rather play at this point is the cover-up sham trial card. Correct. Because they know they're not going to be able to get a conviction. So if you can't win, the next best scenario is to be able to plausibly claim that the game was rigged against you, that there was not a fair trial, that this whole thing was a sham. And as I've already referenced with my wife, that has some political power. So I'm not uh, naive at all that there aren't Democrats who believe strongly that, you know, there ought to be witnesses. But if we don't get witnesses, if, we, if the Demo if Republicans decide to go on to full cover-up mode, that's not too bad for us. In fact, that might even be a better scenario for us than if we have a semi-fair trial and let's say the witnesses don't turn out as well as we had hoped, and there's still an overwhelming acquittal of Donald Trump, that would actually be a far worse scenario politically for Democrats than, uh, than the one that I just outlined. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't Democrats who fervently believe in their case. And obviously, uh, the person who does more so than anybody else is Adam Schiff. Uh, Adam Schiff has come loaded for bear. And I am somebody who uh, has been criticized for defending Adam Schiff. Uh, Adam Schiff is somebody who has been en public enemy number one of the Trump people for quite some time. Now, 
This does not take a, uh, a doctorate degree, master's degree, or even an undergraduate degree to figure out what happens here with regard to the Trump forces, the state-run media, uh, and, and how and, and why they choose their targets. They choose their targets because they are afraid of particular people. They targeted Robert Mueller for exactly that reason. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. So they target Mueller because they found him to be dangerous. Turned out he wasn't because he crapped himself in his testimony. He was too old and he lost his balls and all those reasons I've given in the past. But there's a reason why Adam Schiff has been the target. Why they make fun of his name. Because that, you know, that, really, you know, that really is very significant. You know, we, we're now in, the, in basically second or third grade rules here where because his name rhymes and sort of sounds like shit or shifty, that somehow this means he's not to be believed. I mean, that's that's the level of discourse we're at now. I love the poorly educated. And, and so he can provide a two and a half hour, incredibly compelling and, and fact filled, logic filled uh, uh, opening argument that blows Trump out of the water and the other side says, yeah, but his name sounds like shit. So therefore, and by, by the way, have you seen his eyes? They're a little weird. So therefore, he's not to be believed. I love the poorly educated. And that's what works. That's what works in this day and age because that's the level of our discourse. But Schiff is not buying this idea that this is all a show. In fact, uh, when I was watching his opening argument yesterday, I was thinking about the scene in uh, Rocky One, the movie Rocky One, when Apollo Creed's trainer, and in this case, uh, Apollo Creed's trainer would be like uh, the Trump lawyers uh, talking to uh, Trump, uh, where Apollo Creed's uh, trainer is trying to inform Apollo Creed that Rocky does not realize that this is all a show, that this is for real. He doesn't know it's a damn show. He thinks it's a damn fight. Yeah, that's Adam Schiff. That's Adam Schiff right there. No one told Adam Schiff that this is all a show. He doesn't know it's a damn show. He thinks it's a damn fight. Now, it is a show. He's going to lose. But Adam Schiff is not messing around. And Adam Schiff's opening uh, argument yesterday, in my view, was totally outstanding. Uh, it, It was tremendous in so many ways. I did not get a chance to see his evening uh, statement, but the reviews of that were at least as good, uh, if not better, than his original opening statement. But his original opening argument started with a quote from Alexander Hamilton. Now, this whole situation is so very strange for a lifelong Republican conservative like myself, because I have grown up believing, apparently naively, uh, that my side didn't have total ownership of, but at least uh, was able to rent several important concepts, one of which was the Constitution and the intent of the founding fathers of our country. That was usually the realm of Republicans. We're the ones that got to quote the founding fathers. The liberals and the Democrats are the ones, oh, the Constitution is a living, breathing organism. It doesn't really mean that much. The founding fathers are a bunch of racist white men. Uh, They're to be ignored. We've moved on from that. And now the world is turned totally upside down. And now we have Adam Schiff, a liberal from here in Southern California, quoting right off the bat Alexander Hamilton, in a letter that he wrote to George Washington. 
And this was extraordinary. I had never seen this quote before, but wow, does this hit you right between the eyes? This Whoever came up with this was absolutely brilliant. Because here's the Alexander Hamilton quote talking essentially about how our system of government is intended to handle the worst possible scenarios with regard to who might end up in leadership. And think for yourself who Alexander Hamilton might have been referring to over uh, 200 years ago when he wrote this letter. When a man unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents, having the ability of military habits, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty. Hmm. What does that sound like? When such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, gee, I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking about who this might be. I love the poorly educated. To join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Bringing it under suspicion to flatter and fall in with the nonsense of the zealots of the day. I love the poorly educated. It may justly be suspected that his object is to throw into confusion that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. The collusion delusion is over. Now, I, I was pretty subtle in uh, who I think uh, Hamilton may have been referring to inadvertently all those years ago, but it's obvious why Adam Schiff chose that quote to begin his opening argument. And to me, to anyone who has an open mind and, and understands uh, how these things work, that was incredibly powerful. My favorite parts, though, other than the quote from Hamilton uh, about Schiff's presentation is it wasn't just the facts of the case. And let's be clear. The facts of the case have always been overwhelming. This was this is the very rare case where you got the smoking gun on the, essentially the first day of the investigation. The smoking gun is the transcript of the call between Trump and Zelensky. Everything after that is just filling in details and 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 making it clear what Trump's intent was. So the evidence has never really been in question. The, maybe the intent was, maybe the level to which the intent was proven, but we've, we've known essentially, for anybody who understands the way Trump works, we've known from the beginning that this was all true. Now there's a question, is that impeachable? You know, I've always felt that this was not the best case to bring against Trump mainly because it's not all that compelling from a political standpoint. Most people don't know where Ukraine is on a map. I think there have been there were far more devastating and, uh, and more important uh, impeachable offenses that Trump has committed. Unfortunately, Robert Mueller blew many of those. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But the reality is that the evidence has never been a major factor in this story. Essentially, Trump and his minions and his state-run media 
have effectively admitted, even his lawyers have effectively admitted it's all true. So putting that part of Schiff's performance aside, he also resonated with me because my biggest concern has been the future. I wrote about that in my open letter to Mitt Romney. I've talked about that consistently. It was a large part of my lobbying effort to my friend, Democratic Congressman John Yarmuth, which successfully shifted him from anti-impeachment to pro-impeachment. And that's about future presidents, future would-be tyrants. And one of the things that I thought Schiff did best was he consistently made the argument that Trump has created a blueprint for a future tyrant to beat impeachment. And this cannot be underestimated. And I've even considered that, you know what? Uh, Maybe impeachment was a bad idea, not because it wasn't just, but because Trump is so unique. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi made statements consistent with this a while back, and I, I didn't agree with them, but I'm, I'm starting to understand, at least, I haven't come to the conclusion she was right, but I'm starting to understand where she was coming from, that a failed impeachment here could end up theoretically being worse than not impeaching. And that's partially why I think Mitt Romney's vote is so very, very important from a historical perspective. But what I mean by Trump creating a blueprint for a future tyrant to beat impeachment is thanks to Bill Barr, we've now set in stone this idea that a president cannot be indicted. He cannot be indicted, rightly or wrongly, but that's now pretty much set in stone. And if a president obstructs an impeachment process or inquiry enough, and especially if their party is in control of the Senate, They cannot be removed via impeachment because the argument being made here is as long as you're willing to obstruct, which Bill Clinton didn't do during that impeachment inquiry, which even Richard Nixon did not do in that impeachment inquiry, as long as you obstruct and as long as your party controls the Senate, there's no way for you to be removed because it can be just shut down. And then they'll just be able to say, well, it wasn't proven because we're not going to allow you to prove your case because we're not going to allow witnesses. We're not going to allow people to testify. We're not going to hand over documents. And the reality is that even if you don't control the Senate, it's going to be almost impossible for somebody to be removed. You know, Nixon resigned. It's incredibly important for people to remember. Nixon resigned because public opinion shifted and Republicans like Barry Goldwater forced Nixon to resign. Number one, there are no Barry Goldwaters anymore. I I think it's more than symbolic that the man who eventually took over Barry Goldwater's seat in in the Senate from Arizona, John McCain, is dead. Not that John McCain would have had the power to get Donald Trump to resign because he would have told John, John McCain to go pound sand. But John McCain at least would have been making that argument. And that would have provided cover for other Republicans to potentially do the same. But one of the scariest aspects of what we're dealing with here and why it does matter how this trial turns out, not from whether he's acquitted or, or convicted, he's going to be acquitted, he's not going to be removed. We know that already. 
But how this goes down is still incredibly important for the future. Incredibly important because there's going to come a day and Trump is sowing those seeds for his own selfish purposes. There's going to come a day when there's a real tyrant. There's a Trump who knows what the hell he's doing. There's a Trump who doesn't shoot himself in the foot every day. There's going to be a Trump who really, really wants power for truly evil purposes and isn't just a buffoon stroking his own ego. And it's under those circumstances that we are in real danger of having effectively created a monarchy. And that's another theme of Schiff's presentation. We are on the verge of creating a monarchy because when your president is above the law and cannot be held accountable, we have set up this loophole now, which our founders surely never anticipated. And one of the most bizarre, absurd defenses, and the defenses have been pathetic by the Trump defense team, but the most absurd is, is clearly this idea that abuse of power is not somehow an impeachable offense. You cannot be serious. Abuse of power would have been the first and most prominent concept when it came to impeachment by our founding fathers. A sixth grader would understand that. The entire premise of the Constitution is to prevent a king. It is totally and completely absurd that our founding fathers would say, ah, oh, no, no, let the president can do whatever the hell he wants. Uh, this is uh, all, all uh, presidential harassment, as uh, Donald Trump refers to it. We're better than that. Now, I don't know that we are anymore. And that's one of the things that Schiff talked about. Are we just going to, as, as a, he was referencing, get over it? And when, 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 uh, when the Trump supporters say, get over it, what, are they really just saying, we need to get over democracy? Do we need to get over being a democratic republic? Because that's what will effectively happen. It won't happen the day that Trump is acquitted, but it, will, it won't just sow the seeds. It won't just pave a path. It will create a massive, massive opening for some future tyrant to drive tanks, maybe not even metaphorically, right through. And then it's over. We, we are creating a, a domino effect that inevitably, and I don't know how long it'll take, but inevitably will end our system of government because that's the way humans work. Our founding fathers understood human frailty. They understood our weaknesses, and they tried to set up a system that prevented humans from destroying our own system of government. You know, the famous uh, phrase, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. Well, we're on the verge of letting that slip through our fingers. In the defense of Donald Trump? Donald Trump? Really? You cannot be serious! I mean, the whole thing is just... It's just flat out ridiculous. But it's also scary. It's very, very scary. By the way, I, 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 I want to make sure that I don't have total reverence uh, and naively for our founding fathers, I do find that some of the rules for the impeachment trial are a bit uh, archaic and way too vague. Uh, I mean, it is, it is strange to me that we're wasting all this time on, on things that are totally irrelevant 
Uh, and, and one of the weirdest rules, and it's funny that this rule is being adhered to uh, as if it's the gospel because it's specifically in the rules involving impeachment written by our founding fathers, that each day the trial is to begin at 1 p.m. Now, <laughs> I'm assuming that's because it took a while for horse-drawn carriages to get <laughs> to the Capitol and, you know, no one wanted to ruin their mornings or whatever. But, you know, be- if it hadn't been for the change in the rules, a lot of this trial would be going on at midnight because of that. Now they've, they've adjusted it slightly, but it's still going on all day. And the, the idea that both sides need 24 hours to set out their case over three days is, is a bit strange. And it's also, unlike the founders, and I think they did this on purpose, but why I'm not so sure, the, the rules are very vague. I mean, no one really even knows what the role of the chief justice is supposed to be. And he, had, he admonished both sides uh, late at night, the, the first night. I, I, I thought he was being a little weaselly. Uh, and, and over the language that was being used. Of course, Republicans were trying to use that as, aha, see, Democrats aren't serious about this process. Jerry Nadler called our lawyers liars and part of a cover-up. Well, that's probably actually true, but somehow that was inappropriate on the floor of the U.S. Senate, and some Republicans were saying, oh, th- this is a reason why moderates shouldn't uh, vote to give witnesses. I mean, that's just baloney. They're just looking for some excuse, some reason not to uh, be able to provide a real trial. And that's proof of that. Now, as I'm, I want to make one other uh, caveat to my praise of Adam Schiff, who deserves a lot of it, especially since all of the, the vitriol and attacks that he has taken because they see him as dangerous on the Trump side. I am reminded of the same way I felt about Lindsey Graham back in 1999 during the Bill Clinton trial. I revered Lindsey Graham, because he, I thought, was the person standing up against Bill Clinton and in favor of impeachment better than anybody else was. And it's why he is now a senator from South Carolina. And it is why his defense of Trump is just so utterly uh, sickening and pathetic and indicative of just what a cult the entire Republican Party has been. So with that in mind, it occurred to me, so 20 years from now, is then Senator Adam Schiff, and he's clearly going to be a senator from California if he wants to be. I mean, Dianne Feinstein is either going to retire or die eventually. And so Schiff will be the person that will replace her. So 20 years from now, using the Lindsey Graham model, is Senator Adam Schiff going to do a total flip and be the biggest defender of President Taylor Swift when she is attacked for using, let's say, tax money as leverage to try to get uh, the rights to her original song playbook back? I mean, because that's where we're probably headed. Let's face it. We're, we're headed towards all total celebrity presidents. And I can t- completely see, unfortunately, Adam Schiff doing a, a 180 and becoming the Lindsey Graham of the Taylor Swift presidency. I hope we're not going to go there. But unfortunately, I can certainly see the scenario where we do. Mentioning Lindsey Graham, if there is one benefit of this impeachment trial, it's that Lindsey Graham is forced, although apparently he's been taking a lot of bathroom breaks, if there's one benefit in all this, it's that Lindsey Graham, the weasel that he is, is forced to sit quietly and listen for several hours a day to a story that has to make him incredibly uncomfortable. Correct. And so if there is one human value to this whole ordeal, it is probably that. There's one other element of this whole Ukrainian situation that I want to mention 
that uh, nobody else has. And, and that is that Republicans, like Lindsey Graham, should be absolutely incensed, incensed by this Ukrainian scenario, not because of the, the concept that uh, Trump was using U.S. military aid to get uh, a personal favor from a, a, an ally who was fighting off Russian aggression and everything that's involved in that. That should be enough to outrage people. But here's the political element of this that gets totally missed. And I've never seen anyone else mention this except for me. But this is really important. If you're a Republican, this should really piss you off because this is what Donald Trump was doing. Think about this, folks. Let's pretend that Ukraine actually went through with this and announced investigations into the Bidens that were totally and completely bogus. But they did so under the threat of the Trump administration and they uh, they it went, so it goes through and there's this big to do over Ukraine doing this. And it's a major news story. And Trump, of course, is mentioning this at all of his rallies. And let's pretend then that Joe Biden is still the Democratic nominee, which is still very plausible. We're seeing that there's a rally around Joe Biden effect among Democrats because of this story. Now, he might be being hurt among independents, but he's doing better now uh, in many of the Democratic polls than he was even before all this, or at least as well. So let's pretend that this all went down as Trump planned and Biden is the nominee. And let's say it's October of this year and Biden is beating Trump and it looks like he's going to be the president. What is Ukraine's self-interest at that moment? Right? They desperately need the United States. They're looking down the barrel of a Joe Biden presidency when they were used effectively in the campaign against Joe Biden. They have the goods on Trump. They have him dead to rights. I would suggest to you that the most likely scenario there is Ukraine gives it all up. And right in the middle of October, they bring Trump down. They bring the Republican Party down. They say the whole thing was a scam. It was an extortion. We didn't. The, the Biden uh, investigation was bogus. We only did it to keep our military funding. And all this breaks right before an election. And the Republican Party, along with Donald Trump, gets wiped out. That's what Trump was creating as a likely scenario. The problem is he is barely a checkers player. He's not a chess player. And if he, I don't know if you understand what he thought the ultimate outcome was, was going to be here. Cause it was, he was giving enormous leverage over to Ukraine. And if they found it in their self-interest to screw him, they would have. Yet no one talks about this. It's very similar to the Moscow Tower project during the 2016 election. That was always the most offensive of many elements of that story to me. Because if that had come out in October of that year, that could have been devastating to the Republican Party as well. And Trump didn't give a damn because it was all about Trump. And he's at, at best a checkers player, not a chess player. So I wish somebody would at least 
bring that into their mindset that Trump is being incredibly reckless, not just with the rule of law, but also with the future, what left, left of it is, of the Republican Party. One other point I, I mentioned, I intended to mention earlier, with regard to Trump's lawyers and the Clinton impeachment and how bizarre a world this whole situation is, and it is very, very strange. I mean, this whole situation is so bizarre, but there's nothing that illustrates just how bizarre where we are, especially for people of my age, than to think that now Ken Starr, the guy who led Bill Clinton's impeachment, and Alan Dershowitz, who was a major part of O.J. Simpson's defense team, among others, is now part of Donald Trump's impeachment defense team. If in, let's say, the year 2000, (laughs) if in the year 2000 you had told me, you know, in 2020, uh, Ken Starr is going to (laughs) be defending a president against impeachment for far more uh, significant allegations than he was in favor of Bill Clinton's impeachment for, that he will be joined by Alan Dershowitz of O.J. Simpson uh, fame, that Lindsey Graham will also be vehemently defending this president against impeachment. And then, oh, by the way, this president's name was Donald Trump. I think my reaction would have been, you cannot be serious. It's just impossible. That's impossible. And yet that's where we are. That's where we are in all this. And, And it's also mind blowing that so many things that have happened in just the last couple of weeks would have taken out any other president. I mean, the Lev Parnas interview with Rachel Maddow, which I wrote a column about, which you can find at our Twitter handle, and I predicted as explosive as the Lev Parnas interview was, it was going to have no impact. That seems like ancient history now, but he spilled all the beans. Read my column. That was, in a rational world, devastating to Trump on all of this. And for, you know, six hours, people thought it changed the world. Nothing changes the world because nothing really matters anymore. But you take the Lev Parnas interview combined with the very stable genius book that's now out where Trump is calling our military leaders dopes and babies and saying he wouldn't go to war with them. Well, of course he wouldn't go to war with them because he wouldn't go to war with anybody because, you know, he's, he's Captain Bone Spurs. Correct. But no one's going to believe that either because it's a couple of liberal mainstream reporters and it's in a book and there's no tapes. And we've gone through this this story before. We've seen this movie before. These books come out. They're outrageous. We would go, I can't believe this guy is president. And then nothing happens, even in the middle of an impeachment trial. That's the part that's most amazing. The, the Parnas interview plus the very stable genius book should have rocked any presidency to its core at any time, but especially right in the middle of an or just before an impeachment trial. And yet it, it, there's no evidence it's going to impact even one vote in the U.S. Senate. That's how pathetic things currently are. Now, in a moment, I'll have a few closing thoughts on this episode of the podcast regarding the current political situation. There are many new developments there. But first, an important interview I did with Tom Bauer, the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, 
capsules, topical lotions and salves, and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity. But for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or, or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of the, all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana, and why your product is not the latter. Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. Now, I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. You know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just you don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at Imbue Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian. You know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to, to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. It's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a new story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and, and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that aren't doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. 
in, in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and and the way that uh, you know CBD, which is basically a kind of a, a brand new uh, thing for FDA, they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that that is again is it goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your your veterinarian to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. Tell us, tell us why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks, and Certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're we are a higher price product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness, and you know what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to or the customers that use our product, or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, they want something that works, and that's what our products do. So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www.imbuecbd. That's www.imb, as in boy, uecbd.com, com. Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship. John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. Now, the biggest political development of the last couple of weeks since the last time we did an episode of the Individual One podcast has definitely been the rift between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. In case you missed it, there was this leak that apparently came from Elizabeth Warren herself that a couple of years ago, Bernie Sanders told her, and by the way, they're, they're friends, or at least they have been friends, that a woman cannot be president of the United States or would have a tough time being president of the United States and essentially that the Democratic nominee in 2020 ought to be a man. Now, this situation screams to me, and I'm no Bernie Sanders fan, but it screams to me something that was purposely taken out of context for Elizabeth Warren to be able to virtue signal and and attack uh, Bernie Sanders. I don't believe that Sanders is dumb enough to say something like that so directly to Elizabeth Warren, even though he considered her a friend. He probably said something to the effect, which I believe is accurate, that a, a woman has to face challenges that a man doesn't, especially against Donald Trump. And Hillary Clinton obviously proved that, even though she got three million more votes than Trump, but she lost in the Electoral College by a significant margin. So we'll never know for sure what was actually said, but this came up at the last Democratic debate, and then they had some words afterwards that were clearly heated, but it's obvious that there's been a rift. And that rift benefits one person more than anybody else, and that's Joe Biden, because Joe Biden needs... Uh, you know, in my opinion, three or four viable other candidates that that can't get above 20, 25 percent. And anything that causes a rift between those two, especially if neither one wins decisively, that helps Biden. Now, if one of them gets knocked out, that hurts Biden. 
although even under this scenario, it might not hurt Biden as much as it would have normally because because thanks to this rift, let's say Warren were to get out, her people might not automatically go to Sanders anymore. So that's a help for Biden as well. Now, the early returns on the polling data, and it's still a little early for to see how this this all settles in, but it appears weirdly and not surprisingly against the media's conventional wisdom because the media is almost always wrong in these situations. The media sided with Warren. Well, the Democratic voters appear to be siding with Sanders because if anyone's been hurt by this, it's been Elizabeth Warren. I, I don't know exactly why, but that's the way I'm reading the numbers. Maybe they don't believe her. Maybe they thought she shouldn't have raised the issue. Maybe they think that uh, it seems desperate. Who knows? There's all sorts of possible reasons. But right now, Bernie Sanders is clearly in second place nationwide. The Iowa and New Hampshire polls are still very much a NASCAR race with a bunch of cars very close together and no one being able to take a large lead. I don't think that's bad for Joe Biden. But all of this is working pretty well for Joe Biden. Now, I do want to mention the Mike Bloomberg impact. Uh, Bloomberg is an interesting situation. I don't believe Bloomberg has any chance at all of winning the Democratic nomination. I would like to believe, and I intend to, that he knows he can't win the Democratic nomination. But he's so rich, he doesn't care. He has now announced that he's willing to spend $2 billion, and the the phrasing here is important, defeating Donald Trump. Not $2 billion making Mike Bloomberg president, but $2 billion defeating Donald Trump. I'm reminded of the clip we played earlier in the podcast. He doesn't know it's a damn show. He thinks it's a damn fight. Yeah, Mike Bloomberg is not messing around. (laughs) I realize he's super rich, but you're willing to spend $2 billion. You ain't messing around. This ain't a show. This is a fight. He does not want Trump reelected, and that makes an impact. I'm sorry, $2 billion is 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 legitimate money that has got to have an impact. I mean, most things don't matter in life anymore, but $2 billion well spent will have an impact on what's left of the malleable independent voter out there. I'm not sure Mike Bloomberg is the perfect spokesperson, but he's not bad either, and he's not dumb. So that is not good for Trump. And it's, by the way, it doesn't appear to be hurting Biden. What's interesting is that Bloomberg has increased support to about 7-8% nationally, there's no evidence that any of that has come from Biden. Seemingly, most of it has come from Buttigieg. And by the way, I now believe that Buttigieg is toast. Uh, uh, And part of the reason why I believe Buttigieg is toast, and I had given him a chance to win the nomination late last year, but uh, his, his surge is over, and I didn't realize that he is now the former mayor of South Bend. And I know this sounds silly, but I'm a big believer that at least subconsciously that matters a lot, especially with a guy that young. We do not vote for unemployed young people for president, period. Uh, We don't like having young people for president in general, but when they are unemployed, even subconsciously, that has a massive impact. Look what happened to Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke thought he was a legitimate presidential candidate. He loses for U.S. Senate, and he goes nowhere because he's, he's, he's unemployed. He has no gig. 
And now Buttigieg is going to be referred to as former South Bend mayor. They, that ain't going to cut it. So I, I think that things are looking pretty well for Joe Biden. I'm not as convinced, ironically enough, that Biden will beat Trump easily because his numbers against Trump have diminished a little bit over the course of this year, maybe partially because of the whole Ukrainian scandal. Who knows? And Trump's approval rating is inching up. It is in the realm of where he can win. It's now around 44%. That's enough for him to be viable. That's enough for him, as I've said previously, to get on the ride. And once he's on the ride and is viable and potent, who knows what might happen? So I'm a little worried. There's been some indication, by the way, that Justin Amash might run as a libertarian. That would hurt Trump, in my view. I hope that actually happens. But uh, there's no nothing definitive on that as of yet. So a lot going on, but I'm not going to change our our episode ending numbers too significantly. I believe that the chances of Trump not finishing his first term in office are still around seven percent. And I'm not willing to go over 50 percent on his reelection number. I'm going to keep that at 49 percent, even though I'm definitely in the very concerned realm when it comes to whether or not Trump will be reelected. I'm not 100% sure when our next Individual One podcast will be, but I can assure you this, it will be sooner than, there'll be less time between this episode and the next one than there was uh, between the last episode we did and this one. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Please remember to uh, subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual Number One Pod. That's Individual the Number One Pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.